right, good evening. Uh, it's good to see everybody back this evening. Welcome back to uh, Discipleship Month. And we are continuing in our study four different doctrines or four different beliefs that every believer should understand. And the reason that we say this is not necessarily because there's a test over this, uh, but these are four doctrines that will do a couple of things. First of all, it will give you confidence inside of your own faith. I think that's one of the things that we've talked about uh, each week as we've promoted this, is that we want you to have a sense that if someone talks about this topic, if somebody has a question about it, if you have a question about it, you have a framework on how to handle uh, that doctrine as well. We've also called it uh, how to cult-proof your faith. And what we mean by that is that if you get these four doctrines right and solid and secure with these four doctrines, the likelihood that you will fall into a false teaching of a cult is greatly, greatly reduced. These are the four places uh, where that happens. So we're going to dive into week two uh, this evening. And we are continuing to talk about these four doctrines. Uh, last week we talked about creation. This week we're talking about biblical authority, the Word of God. Uh, the week after that, next week, we're going to talk about the deity of Christ. And really what we're talking about is the humanity and the deity of Christ. And then we're going to finish the last week uh, with the Trinity, how the three are one and the one are three. And we look forward to that conversation uh, as well. Uh, the basic outline that we're going to cover each single week as we go through these doctrines is going to be what does Scripture teach? It won't be an exhaustive statement of what Scripture teaches, but it'll be a starting point of what Scripture teaches. We'll talk about why does this doctrine matter? How does it impact our lives? Uh, then we're going to talk about what happens when other people get this doctrine wrong. That's what we talk about in terms of the cult-proofing uh, your faith. But then we also need to understand that it's not just other people out there that have the potential to get this wrong, but sometimes you and I get this wrong. Sometimes we get this wrong in terms of sloppiness in our doctrine or faith or our discipleship and how we live. And so we'll try to unpack each one of those topics as well. <clears throat> Interesting, we're going to start at the same place that we started last week. Uh, we're going to look at this question about the chicken or the egg because the question that we asked is, what is the answer to who says? Uh, the options are, is it the Word of God? Is it the world around us? And remember we said that most theologians start with this question, well, we start with the Word of God, the doctrine of the inspiration of the Word of God. But we kind of followed a little bit of the outline of Psalm 19 last week. And in Psalm 19, it is a statement, take a look at the heavens that declare the wonder of God, the glory of God, the might of God, the power of God. And we spent some time thinking last week about the fact that the starting place is just wake up and open your eyes. And that gives evidence for the presence of God. And that's why we started with creation. But the second half of Psalm chapter 19 says, and your word speaks this. And so it really is this balance between the created world that you can observe with your eyes and then the specific word that's the ordained word of God. So let's jump in to the word this, morning, this evening. We're talking about scripture. Now, I want you to check this out because I want you to notice the overlap that is between last week's lesson and this week's lesson. If you'll notice from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 it says then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature now that we talked about last week about the fact that God was a hands-on God uh, whatever that meant it meant that what we're supposed to hear is that he took his hands and formed it formed our being formed our shape out of the clay, out of the dust with his own hands. But that just left us as lifeless forms. But we became a living being, a living creature, when he breathed his breath, when he breathed life into us, and we became animated, and we became alive. Incredible uh, picture. But check this out this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, says that all Scripture is breathed out by God 
and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Do you see the parallel between those two verses? Those two different passages? Just as the breath of God gave us life and moved us from being just chunks of clay to being a living breathing, a living being because the breath of God was imparted to it. This passage of Scripture uses the exact same language and says that these words become living words with life because God breathed His authority and life into His Word. That's an amazing thing. Uh, I love the parallel. I love the reality. I love the fact that the Word of God is alive because it was the breath of God. Now, just a quick aside at this point, one of the things that I would mention to you is that the word for breath, wind, and spirit are very, very similar in Scripture. And so this is the breath of God, but it could also be spoken of as the Spirit of God. Now, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks when we get to the Trinity. But when it says the wind, the breath, the life comes from God. We also see in this passage not only the source of the Word of God, but we also see the purpose of the Word of God. It is for teaching, instruction, helping you know the world around you. It is for reproof, correction. It's for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, wholeness in terms of your life, and that you'll be equipped for every single good work that God intended you to be. So how do we get to the place that we fulfill all that God intended us to? How do we get to the place that we are ready to do the work that He's called us to do? It comes through Scripture. That's why this matters so much. Let's continue to ask that question about why does this matter. Uh, several reasons. Uh, one is that Scripture reveals God. Uh, we, we talked about the specificity that we get in Scripture. Nature, creation, this world gives us a general overview of Man, there's something bigger than us out here. There is a power that had to have started this. There is a power that holds all of this together. And we can see that with our eyes, our ears, and all of our senses. But that doesn't tell us His name. That doesn't tell us His personality. That doesn't tell us His personhood. It doesn't tell us His purpose. It is the Word of God that does that. So why does Scripture matter? Why is that an important doctrine for us? Because it moves beyond just saying, I think that there's a God out there, to God revealing Himself through His Word and says, this is who I am. This is what I care about. This is what I want to see happen in the world. Scripture also matters because it explains our story. Probably if we were to use some language of modern day, Scripture helps us to find our identity. Scripture helps me find the meaning of who I am. Every once in a while we'll have a season say, what is life all about? What am I here for? What, 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 what does this all mean? Well, Scripture actually unpacks that so that you're not guessing, you're not throwing darts in the dark. Here is the answer. In fact, when Scripture explains our story, He tells us how we got here, <laughs> and He tells us where we're going from here. In other words, Scripture backs up and tells us about our past, and Scripture also tells us about our future. And in fact, if we have those two pieces of information, those two great questions, where did I come from, where am I going? Scripture answers those two incredible, important questions for our lives. But Scripture also directs our journey. Scripture also moves us forward because it says, this is what matters now. Here's your past. Here's the future. And here's what we're supposed to be doing in between while we wait between the past and the future. And then I would say that Scripture matters 
because it gives us a foundation of truth. Now Michael is downstairs this evening uh, teaching about some hot topics and controversial topics that, that we deal with in life and, and folks are there because they want to know what the answer to some of those questions are. But I would tell you that if it wasn't for the Word of God, there's no answer to those questions. So the whole group downstairs is trying to figure out, okay, what is the answer about this topic or this topic or this topic? Well, the Word of God gives us those answers. It gives us not just answers for our lives, but it gives us the answers to these great questions. If it wasn't for Scripture, then what we would come to is that we would come to a season in life where might would make right. It wouldn't be because something was foundationally right or wrong. It would just go with the loudest voice or the most votes or the biggest bully. And that's what we would determine to be right. There needs to be something from outside of ourselves that says, no, this is the North Star. This is the direction that we're supposed to go. And in fact, that's really a huge part of what Scripture does for us. Because what it does is it reveals God to us, which gives us that foundation of truth. Sure. Now, what I, w what I would tell you is that we make a beeline to the truth, and there's an awful lot of distractions on the way to truth. But I would also tell you that one of the things that Scripture reveals to us is that there has been a battle over truth from the very beginning of time. In fact, if you take a look at Genesis chapter 3, that's when the serpent comes in and speaks lies from the very beginning. The lies are what causes us to fall from truth. God says this, and then there's a liar who says something different from that. If you take a look at the battles, and I don't just mean military battles, but you look at the conflicts that are found throughout the Old Testament. You look at Paul's epistles. You look at the Gospels. All of those stories is really a conflict between God's revealed truth and truth or perceived truth or competitive truth that is trying to push that back. And so, yes, we do feel that tension in the world that we live in today. But one of the reasons why Scripture matters to us is it tells us that this has been the story all the way here, and it's going to be the story all the way until, until He comes back. And in that meantime, we find here. Now, this isn't really... Uh, this week's topic, but, but I would tell you that there may come a time when we don't have the support structure of the rest of society to what we understand to be truth. That doesn't matter. What we have is that we have the foundation and the structure of the Word of God that gives us that confidence. And so we don't necessarily need the vote or the affirmation of government or culture or society or anything else. Now, sometimes it's easier to coast along because it seems like, I would tell you that culture has never fully gotten the following of Christ correct. Now, sometimes it can look closer to real faith, but sometimes there's a danger in that as well where everybody kind of looks right and sounds right and talks right. And sometimes that becomes a more difficult place to be a follower of Christ because we just kind of all go along. But either way, we have the assignment to make that beeline for truth that's revealed to us. And we're not lost and we're not guessing. And we can be encouraged because Paul says, man, we thought we were going to be crushed. We didn't think we were going to make it. But we lived in this hardship and we experienced this. And so I guess I should have added to this uh, that why does it matter is because it encourages us about the battles that have gone on before us and the fact that we can be victorious in the battles that we're in today. Man, I'm glad I asked that question. And you asked that question. That was good. That was a good stopping point. Um, let's talk about the authority of Scripture because one of the things we just got done talking about is that why Scripture matters is because it reveals God, it explains our story, it directs our journey, it gives foundation for truth. But somebody, real, live, flesh and blood people, could say, but should it? 
what makes your book more valuable than my book? Well, what makes your book count across the pages of other uh, books from the history of the world? What I would just tell you is you read the Word of God, it intends to be authoritative. Uh, in fact, you take a look here, uh, I just have, thus saith the Lord. Uh, it is a very common phrase, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, the voice of God, or the voice of the prophet, speaking on behalf of God, says, by the way, this is what God says. If you take a look at the law, it's very clear God puts it in writing. He carves it into tablets of stone, and He says, this is what I say, and by the way, you should live your lives based on it. What He has recorded in His Word, He has intended to be taken as the authority. It's not entertainment. It is not a point of view. It's not science. It is a word of authority. And you read anywhere through the Old Testament, you read anywhere through the Scripture, it is presumed in the text that because He has said it, it comes with authority. I would also tell you to notice the way that Jesus uses the Old Testament. He constantly refers to Old Testament quotations. And so even though He is the Son of God speaking in His own authority, He also says, you have heard it said. And He makes references to the Old Testament. He points out the places where He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So watch how Jesus handles Scripture. Even Jesus, the Son of God, builds his message upon the authority of the recorded Word of God. The New Testament writers uh, continue to use the Old Testament. Paul, Peter, Jude, all of these Old New Testament writers build their teaching ministry, not from something that they've just thought up, but they build their teaching ministry from Old Testament quotations. They have treated it as authority. Um, and then this is one of my favorite places. This is, watch how the New Testament writers uh, use the New Testament. So it's not just using the Old Testament, which would have been clearly identified as the truth of uh, Scripture. But watch this. This is one of my favorite verses uh, for a couple of reasons. That Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 16, or is it 15 and 16? I'll tell you in just a moment. It's 15 and 16. I love this passage. It says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, I think that's interesting, because Peter and Paul didn't always get along, but now he's referring to him as our beloved brother Paul, also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him. Now notice, he is quoting Paul. He's saying there's authority in Paul. Pay attention to what Paul is writing to you. But he continues here. He says, as he does in all of his letters. This is the Apostle Peter writing inside of the New Testament time frame, making reference to the letters that Paul is writing. And then he says, when he speaks in them, in these matters... I love this. He says, some of the things in them are hard to understand. <laughs> I love the fact that the Apostle Peter looks at Paul's letters and says, man, I'm confused about some of that stuff. Boy, Sunday school was tough last week. We studied one of Paul's letters. Um, he, he says it is tough. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. And then here's the phrase, as they do the other scriptures within Paul and Peter's lifetime they understood that Paul's writings were considered to be as authoritative as the other parts of scripture they knew it they could tell it uh, from the very beginning now how can you uh, how can you tell that uh, how is it that they would be able to identify that Paul's letters and not Barnabas's letters. Why Paul's letters? Why these Gospels? How do they stand out as authoritative in Scripture? Well, one of the things I would just say is just the uniqueness of the voice. When you read the Word of God, it sounds different. 
if you were to compare it to the scriptures or the sacred writings of other world religions, they're old. <laughs> Sometimes they've got some wisdom in them or some, some things that are, oh, okay, I see that. But I'm just telling you there is something that resonates that stands out about the inspired word of God. There is a consistency that we find in Scripture, which is really kind of amazing because remember, Scripture is made up of 66 different books. And even some of those 66 different books have different sections in them that have different sources that pull together. I think it's about 40 different people who are considered to be writers who have contributed to these 66 different books. They are written over a couple thousand years of time, and yet there is a consistency that ties all of them together. From Genesis, to Psalms, to the Prophets, to the Gospels, to the Epistles, there is a core message that goes through and you can identify and recognize all of these things belong together. They are of the same substance. They are of the same truth and the same value and the same voice. And I think as you see that, in fact, one of the things that you and I love about the Word of God is that the more you study the Word of God, the more you recognize the connectedness of the Word of God, the more you see the consistency of the Word of God. That's powerful and profound coming from all of those places. That's one of the reasons why you can know that the Word of God is trustworthy. I would also tell you it's a similar thing, but the Word of God resonates within us. I think that as you read through different sections of Scripture like, that's true. How, how, does they know, how do they know that? Keep in mind that this has been written over thousands of years now. And, and there are truths that you can say, as I said a few minutes ago, in terms of the battles about truth. Those battles resonate to us today because they're just so full of truth and reality. The God who designed us and created us is the God who speaks those words. So nobody under truth, understands truth or presents truth better than the Word of God. And when we read it, it just has a layer of truth that you cannot find anyplace else. The Word of God also has the power to change lives. One of my favorite times that we have as a church is that when we have the Gideon speaker that comes. And the Gideon speaker, the Gideons are a ministry of uh, Christian businessmen uh, whose sole assignment is the distribution of scriptures around the United States, around the world. And what you have is they have these pocket New Testament, they give them to nurses, they give them to, to the military, they give them to college students, they give them to elementary students, they give them anywhere that they can possibly give them. And every time the one of the speakers from the Gideons comes, they tell you a story about a person who picked up a copy of the Word of God and had their life changed. Not because a preacher came along, not because they joined a church, not because they did, but the voice of God spoke into their lives. The Word of God has been changing lives. Hourly, momently. It's changing someone's life right now. The, the, the Word of God just continually changes lives unlike any other book that has ever been discovered or experienced. And then I would say it also has the test of time. Think about something else that was popular 3,000 years ago that is still popular today. One of the things that was interesting uh, with the Super Bowl last week talking about how long Tom Brady has been in Super Bowls. They gave a list of the companies that advertised in the first Super Bowl that Tom Brady played in. Half the companies don't even exist anymore. It is hard. I mean, that's 15 years. It is hard to pass the test of time, but the Word of God has been around for millennia, and it still is there, and it has enduring relevance. There's a brand new college student probably this week picking up a copy of the Word of God right now in this city and discovering truth for the first time because it speaks 
so powerfully and it endures. It's been tested over time and yet it is still as relevant as it was the first day it was ever recorded. It's pretty good. Now, let's take a couple of moments here and let's talk about some of that false teaching when it comes to understanding the Word of God. Um, let's dive in here. Uh, this is going to be a short list uh, because this could be a place that you have a really long list. Because the truth is, if you miss this one, it, you, you're lost for a while. Um, you know, if you get the first mile on a trip wrong, you, you may end up several states away. Uh, You've you got to get that first start and beginning with where we find authority is that first place. So let's just dive in here. Um, the first false teaching deals with the doctrine of authority and I'm going to point to the Roman Catholic Church here. Now the reason why I speak to this is because this doctrine right here is probably the number one distinction between a Reformed Church or a Baptist Church, an Evangelical Protestant Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Now we could identify dozens and dozens of differences but it starts right here. And here's the distinction between the two. We understand that the Word of God was recognized and identified to be the Word of God. And once we find the Word of God, and we see the Word of God and say, that's different than everything else, then we say, okay, how do we match our lives? How do we match the church? How do we match our doctrine to the Word of God? In the doctrine of the teaching, of the Roman Catholic Church, their teaching is that it was the church that existed and the church identified what should go in to the Bible. And in fact, one of the things that they would say, one of the great benefits of the church is that it gave us the Bible. We believe the Bible gave us the church. And so one of the things is, is that from that point on, we start with here and we try to match our church up to what it says here. In the Catholic Church, they have parallels of, they don't discount the Word of God. They still say it has authority, but they say because the church is the one that recognized the Bible, that they can continue to interpret it in a, and have their own authority, and that the teaching of the church is equal to the Bible. And so that distinction for us is, no, it starts here. And it's our job to hold this up as a mirror and to try to make our church and our lives match the Word of God as closely as we can, rather than saying, here's what we teach, including we've taught the Bible. No, 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 we start here. Does that make sense? We believe that the Bible gives us the church. They believe that the church gives us the Bible. And from that point on, it makes a world of difference. Because we say, well, where is it in the Bible? They say, well, this is what the tradition of the church is. It doesn't matter. Where is it right here? And that's where the separation uh, begins. Um, now, the next one is the doctrine of divine revelation. And there are many, many folks that miss this up. Uh, basically, this says, that the doctrine is, is that God has revealed Himself through the Word of God. And there are not new chapters being added today. It is finished. It is closed. Now God may, through His Spirit, inspire us, help us interpret, help us to think and how to process some things, but there are not new words that come and say, here's the answer. Now, we talked a little bit last week about the Church of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. Well, they come because Joseph Smith in the 1830s, 1840s uh, says that he found a golden copy of the Book of Mormon that gave him a third testament, gave him a brand new revealed truth, and he says, now here is a new true church that God has revealed to me. God hasn't done that. He has finished with his revelation. But he's not the only one. You remember on the news 20 or so years ago, uh, the, the tragedy of David Koresh, where he started his own church and his own compound, 
And a big part of that was follow David Koresh because he has new words from God. He's not building it on the word of God. He says the word of God. But then let me tell you what God has just told me. If we go a little further back in history, um, you all remember uh, Jim Jones in Guyana. Uh, started out with sounded like a person who was teaching the Word of God, convinced people to come and live. We're going to live in a community that's going to be perfect just based on, on my teaching of the Word of God. But then he began to say, I'm able to speak directly on behalf of God. Uh, I would tell you that for me or for anyone else, my Word only counts if you can match what it says in the Word of God. If I speak something and it doesn't match the Word of God, then you can say, well, that's a nice opinion, Tim, but that's not authority. If I speak something that is in opposition to the Word of God, you can say, you're wrong, because this is that foundation. Here we have to be a little bit careful of times and places that somebody says, well, God told me. Well, that's not really the way it works. He tells us in the Word of God. Now, there may be some times that you may say, I believe God is leading in this direction. Because basically we're saying, I'm trying to apply what He has revealed here. The Spirit of God is nudging me in this direction, but it's not going to be something that I can say, here's the final word, God told me this. Now again, that's either the example of you start a brand new religion, you start a cult, but we can have a tendency sometimes to kind of use as the ultimate argument, God told me. You know, the old story is young men or young women walking up to somebody and say, God has told me I'm supposed to marry you. You know, I... And the answer to that is, well, I would have thought he would have told both of us. Uh, but that's a desire to say, you have to date me because I have the authority of God behind me. Well, we, we only have that inside of the Word of God, and that's not there. Uh, I try, no, it, it's not there. Um, and then we've talked about this a little bit, but the doctrine of relativism, the idea that there is no final truth. Uh, and that would just be secularism. And again, that is the world in which we're living in today, is that just wants to say, and again, that starts with the question of where did the world come from? If there is no God of creation, then there's no God of authority either. Uh, so those two things go together. Now, uh, I want to make sure we leave some time for a couple of questions because there's a couple of things that we're going to get into. But let me just mention a few more things before we get there. Discipleship distinctives. This is really, really simple. Uh, you know this, but it's got to go in the notes. I'm contractually obligated to put it in the notes. Here's what we need to do as disciples. We need to read the Word. Just having a good doctrine that says, I believe that the Word of God is authoritative. You know, God says it, that settles it. I believe it, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's great. Wonderful bumper sticker. But if you're not reading it and you're not in the Word then it doesn't matter what your doctrine is. It's got to also be your practice as well. But I would also tell you that we read the Word in order to hear the voice of God. Not to win arguments. Not to know trivia. Not to just have an intellectual pursuit. But we read the Word of God because we want to hear the voice of the one who breathed into it and gave it life. When you read the Word of God, you want to listen for the Spirit of God. And then you read the Word in order to be changed by God. We need to encounter the Word and say, now how does this rearrange my life? I think that's probably one of the areas that we struggle in these days. That we don't come to the Word and say, now how does this rearrange my life? What is it that I'm supposed to change because I've sat before the authority of the living Word of God that's been brought to me by His Spirit? Now, here are the questions. Are you ready? You may not be interested in these questions, but maybe. 
What about the different Bible translations? Um, is one Bible translation better than another? Um, there's probably some translations that are worse than others. <laughs> but the point is that none of them are perfect. Um, so let me just try to just say a couple of quick things about translations. One of the things is you, you know the difference in a couple of things. One, you have a translation, and that is when you take the original languages, Greek and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, and you try to say, what does that word mean in that language, and translate it to what it means in this language. Now, that being said, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. For one thing, it's not math. You know, you, you can't say 2x minus y equals this. The language is... There aren't match-match words. So you have to find the closest word. Uh, you know, like they say, the Eskimos have 17 different words for snow. I don't know whether you learned all of those when you were in Alaska or not. But um, So we only have one word. So there's a distinction. The languages don't match always. There's also translation theories or philosophies that are different from translation to translation. Some of them want to match word for word. Keep the same order of words. Here's a word, let me do a translation. Here's another word, let me do a translation. Here's a word, let me do a translation. Now, there is good accuracy in that, but sometimes there's not always great understanding in that because we don't structure our sentences in the same way. Uh, if you've studied another language, uh, you know that the literal way in which words are spoken. Um, there's a single word in Spanish that says stand up, but literally it means place yourself on your feet. Now, if I were to translate that literally, I would say, okay, class is finished. Everyone place yourselves on your feet. And you're like, well, that's kind of strange. So I've got to be able to have a little bit of flexibility so that I'm translating the idea as well as the words. And so some translations come really, really close to word for word. Some of them do what they call thought for thought. And so it's, it's not quite the phrase, but it's the concept uh, in those. And so just understand, that's the reason why some of the things are different. Some translations, the words are different in the sentence because some of them are holding on to the original syntax, sentence structure, and some of them are using, okay, no, let's, let's try to say this as close to how we would say this on Main Street that we would say it today. One of those is not right and one of those is not wrong. You have to find a balance between those two. Those are translations and how those are different. You also have paraphrases. Now paraphrases are not as precise. It is basically, let me just explain this idea and this idea. The most famous of the paraphrases is called the Living Bible. Uh, the Living Bible was a paraphrase by Kenneth Taylor. He wanted to take the Word of God and make it easy for his children and grandchildren to understand it. He designed it as a children's book. There's nothing wrong with a paraphrase. I like paraphrases. The one that's popular today is called The Message. Just understand that it's a paraphrase. It's not a translation. Now, I would tell you, I would tell you that a paraphrase is good. If you like preaching paraphrases are better. What I mean by that is that when I preach, I'm trying to build that on the Word of God. But I'll tell you a story about this, and I'll kind of wander off here. The paraphrase is trying to interpret Scripture almost like a sermon, but all it does is uses the ideas that are in the text. It never wanders off and chases any rabbits. I like paraphrases. Not the same thing as a translation, doesn't have the same authority as a translation, but there is a purity that one of the best Bible studies you can do is to read a paraphrase. It's not the same thing as the translation, but man, it's a Bible study that never wanders away from the text. I love a paraphrase. Just know the place. I probably would identify a third category between a translation, a paraphrase, and then probably I would call this an agenda. And every once in a while you will find someone that calls itself the Word of God. But it has translated or paraphrased in order to reach specific points. And not just to reflect 
what that is. So we'll talk about Jehovah's Witnesses that have their own translation because they wanted to get to certain conclusions. Uh, there's a, a, a modern Bible uh, that we've just been dealing with because it was in one of our Sunday School curriculums uh, lately called the, the Passion Translation. And the Passion Translation wants to take the Word of God and make it more emotional. And basically they have an agenda that says the Word of God's good, but what if we turned it up to 11? Uh, there's an agenda there. You gotta, you gotta start and end in the same place, and so that's an agenda, and so that would be a problem. Now, what do you do with that? Um, you, can, you can collect a ton of Bibles. Uh, when I was in high school, I taught, uh, I worked at a Christian bookstore, and they had a Bible that had 26 different translations. It was multiple volumes. I, oh, this is the coolest thing ever! And then I met the internet. Um, it, it's got everything. I happen to like what we call blue, blue letter Bible. Dot org. Uh, that's just a website. There's a bunch of different ones that go that way, but you just type in your verse or your topic. Um, it'll go there. But what I want you to see is then it'll pull up your verse. So here is 2 Timothy 3:16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, that starts with the King James translation. But as you come over here and you click on tools, one of the things it's going to do is going to give you a drop-down menu, and it's going to say Bibles. And when you go to Bibles, it's going to show you the same verse in the King James, the New King James, the New Living Translation, uh, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Version. Uh, if you want to try it in Spanish, you can try it here. The New American Standard Version, and I didn't clip, but there's probably five or six more English translations right here. And so what you want to do is you want to compare the different translations when you want to slow down. And what you want to make sure is that you want to make sure that you haven't found in that verse the translation that is out there on an island by itself. Like all the other translations say this, but there's one translation that is just like all by itself. You, you don't want to do that. Now, there is a verse in the Bible that every one of these translations translates best. There, there are some verses where the New Living Translation nails it better than anybody else. There's another verse where the King James gets it better than anybody else. Uh, the ESV. So you're not going to be able to get a Bible that gets it right every single time that isn't the best translation every single time. You want to get the one that mixed. I've used, I preach out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. To be honest with you, there were times in my preaching experience that I found that the NIV rounded things off a little too smoothly. And I'm like, ah, I'd, I'd like a little bit tighter translation there. New American Standard is famous for being really, really tight. But sometimes it's hard to read that out loud because the word order is the most foreign to us. And so, I've tried the NIV and I was a little too, it was just a little bit too loose on occasion. It's not terrible. If that's what you're reading, keep reading it. But for me, every once in a while I thought it was a little too loose. The New American Standard, was, it was just a little bit too tough. I have found the ESV to be, you know, the Goldilocks translation. It's not too hard, it's not too soft, it's just, when I say just right, it's not just right. But I find it to be a comfortable middle ground. Uh, between between the two, uh, but if you're using a translation that's working for you, great, um, great. Um, we can talk more about that. Uh, let's see, where am I? Uh, here's the other question. What about those extra books? What about those extra books? Some Bibles have more books of the Bible than other books of the Bible. And uh, that's always a question, why does your Bible have books that I don't have and vice versa? There's a couple of different categories of extra books. One is, it's called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha means hidden. I don't know exactly why I got that word, uh, but there's the Old Testament Apocrypha. Now, this is what I would tell you, that the Old Testament Apocrypha mostly comes from books that were written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament.
They were rejected by the Jews. The Jews never said, this is the authority. Uh, they, they, they never said they had the same value as Isaiah or Psalms. But when some Greek people started to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, they included some of these Apocrypha books. When Jerome translated the Vulgate, he put them in the back. And he said, these are not the same as Scripture, but I translated them anyways. Over the passage of time, they kind of moved from the back and started to get sprinkled in. No pun intended. Um, the Reformers, the Protestant Reformers, they rejected these books. And over a passage of time, they began to push those back. What's interesting is some people would call themselves 1611 King James Version, really staunch conservative folks. The original 1611 translation of the Bible had these extra books in them. It wasn't until 1827 that most English translations of the Bible uh, removed them uh, from that place. But the Old Testament did not hold them as authoritative. The early church did not hold them as authoritative. They just kind of got tacked in there from the appendix and started to fill in. The reformer said, no, this is not what we believe. Now, I would tell you that the Old Testament Apocrypha is not evil. You don't have to pick up a Bible that's got no minimum and like drop it as though it's, it's stolen. The Old Testament Apocrypha is not evil, but we don't believe it's inspired. It's not going to harm you to read it. It just doesn't rise to the same level as Scripture. Uh, some of it's interesting, but it just doesn't hold the same authority as Scripture. Now there's another category that's called the New Testament Apocrypha. Now this isn't quite as known, but you hear about it every once in a while. Um, Parade Magazine, back in the day when they used to be inserted into the newspaper, they used to always advertise the Gospel of Thomas. Anybody ever remember seeing that? The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, some of these New Testament stories. Now, these come a hundred or two years after the New Testament is closed. Some degree, they try to fill in the blanks where the New Testament doesn't cover. The question, what was Jesus like as a kid? What was Jesus like growing up? What happened behind the scenes? Did Jesus ever date anybody? You know, these are questions that the New Testament doesn't really speak to specifically. And people are like, well, I'd like to know. And so people started to write stories and, and tell us. Um, there's one of the stories that says that uh, Jesus was playing hide-and-seek as a kid. And uh, he walked by a barn and said, is anybody hiding in there? And they said, no, just a bunch of goats. Well, there were people hiding in there, and he turned them into goats. Uh, that's not really the authority of the Word of God. But, I mean, if, if you were eight years old and, and you were the Son of God, that might have been what you did, but that's not what Jesus would have done. Um, but they fill in those kind of blanks. The other thing that this New Testament Apocrypha does is it sort of tries to retrofit authority. And these are some heretical, outside-of-Scripture teachings that were rejected by the church and said, oh, no, 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 that's not true. We talked a little bit about Gnosticism last week and, and, and the idea that, that God just emanates from a little bit lower God, lower God, lower God. That became very, very popular. And they began to try to create and say, you know what, here's what the Gospel of Thomas says. Thomas, you didn't get Thomas's book, but here's what he wrote. And would you believe it? Thomas was a Gnostic. And so they retrofitted authority and try to put in the names of people that we know from the New Testament and say they believed this. Now, you're not really coming across these very often, but if you remember the, the book and the movie, The Da Vinci Code, that's what this was all about. The secret books that you haven't heard about, that had truth, that was being kept from us, and, and, and it had all of these teachings that were, were outside of it. Now, I would tell you, it's okay if you read The Da Vinci Code. I read it because everybody was talking about it. I didn't think it was a very good book. Just I'm not, I'm not trying to throw dirt on it. He, he made some money off that book. Um, but I would tell you that these 
New Testament apocryphos, apocryphal books, I would say are dangerous. And, and I'm not saying you're going to get the cooties from them, but I will tell you the reason why they're dangerous is because they lack the authority of Scripture, but they were written in order to promote heresy that was counter to the New Testament. The whole reason they exist is because they wanted to retrofit teaching that had been declared to be outside of Scripture and say, oh yeah, but I got a copy of this. And so from that standpoint, Bibles don't come with the New Testament apocryphal, apocrypha, but they exist out there. And you'll go, to a, you'll go down to Books a Million and I'll bet you you can find a copy of some of these, the other Scriptures. And you're like, well, I wonder what that's all about. But I'll tell you, a big part of what that's all about is that these were written in order to promote doctrine that didn't fit in the Word of God. And so for that reason, they're far more dangerous than the Old Testament Apocrypha that just, they just don't match authority. Um, one more thing that I want to mention, and I, I'm excited about this. You ready? Um, scripture, remember Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that he breathed life in the nostrils to make us a living creature. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's what gives it life. And then Job chapter 32 and verse 8 says, but it is the spirit of man, but it is the spirit of man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. And I would tell you that as you study Scripture, the very same spirit that gave you life, the very same spirit that gave life to the Word of God, that same spirit is with you as you read the Word of God in order to help you understand the Word of God. And I think that is awesome.